the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. My goodness, my turn again? Okay, let's uh, have a spin at the wheel, shall we? (laughs) Good afternoon. Welcome to the Tuesday, 28th day of November edition of Lifeline. Trust you had an enjoyable, pleasant, relaxful Thanksgiving holiday and are back in the saddle and ready to head into the month of December. Christmas will be around the corner here. And what is it? Quick math. Twenty seven something. Twenty eight days. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I know. Don't remind you. Right. <laughs> well, in any event, we're not going to talk about Christmas today, but we're going to touch on a number of other important, timely topics. Of course, we are full into the election cycle. Is it me or does it seem as if we start talking about general elections and in specific presidential elections earlier and earlier and earlier. They used to run, I don't know what it felt like, for six months. Now it seems like they get elected and suddenly they're back on the campaign trail, almost like being a member of the the House. In any event, we're going to talk a bit about this entire process and demystify aspects of it. Uh, If you're sort of the average fan of civics or not, and just remember what you learned in high school, you might conclude that, well, this is a uh, democracy, and as such, we not only elect those that run in the primaries, but we also have the final say-so as to who wins on uh, the big Tuesday in November. Is that necessarily true? And if it isn't, what about things like the Electoral College and caucusing and conventions? Well, our resident constitutional historian, Bob Zadek, will join us for some insights a little bit later on in tonight's program. That should be quite the conversation. Meanwhile, of course, over the weekend, in addition to watching an eruption of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and hearing news about the trickle of hostages being released, uh, once again, the battle between the West and the East, or more specifically, Western ideals and Islam front and center. While we are encouraged by the temporary detente or ceasefire, realize it is potentially only temporary. And it does go to the heart of why this big divide. We know that there's arguments over territory. That certainly goes back decades, centuries, if not millennia. But what about the one-sidedness that we're seeing here in our own country? Uh, I've been, quite frankly, taken aback by some of the reaction on college campuses, uh, the response seemingly um, all pro-Palestinian, virulently anti-Israel, in spite of the fact that Israel did not provoke this, did not take the first shot, and authored be something to be said for innocent men, women, and children asleep in their own beds, awakened in the middle of the night, brutally shot, some burned alive, 
And yet that doesn't elicit, at least in some quarters, any sympathy. Let's try to understand more. Dr. Alex McFarland joins us. He is a religion and culture expert. He is a best-selling author. In fact, almost two dozen best-selling books to his credit, including the most recently released 100 Bible Questions and Answers for Families. And Dr. McFarland, is always a privilege to have you join us. Well, Craig, it's a great honor to be on with you. I, I have such respect for you as a thinker and communicator that um, I'm always humbled to be on with you. And uh, frankly, maybe even a little intimidated because <laughs> I know that uh, you are you are a voice that really needs no no supplement like me. So uh, it, it really is a privilege to be on, Craig. Well, I appreciate that, my friend. And, and let me start by getting your reaction to my observation. Uh, you know, beyond being stunned that Saturday morning here in America to wake up and hear about this violent, brutal, premeditated attack that literally killed men, women, and children while asleep in their beds. And, of course, the attacks on the music festival, just young people gathering together for a fun yeah. time. And if that wasn't shocking enough, enough. Um, I'm even more surprised that many college campuses, and I want to be clear here, it's not every college campus, but many college campuses across America, instead of equally having a sense of shock and horror and disdain for the actions that took place that faithful morning, instead seemingly overnight pivoted towards complete support for Palestine, no sympathy shown towards Israel, and having a third cousin who was at Anzio, made the march up the Italian boot, and eventually was one of the first sets of troops into Germany to um, help uh, provide the the capture and, and, quite frankly, the release of all these prisoners at Buchenwald, I thought to myself, what's happened where America has gone from the role of doing the best we could to protect world jewelry to now instead acting as if, at least on college campuses, like there are enemies. Wow. Well, you know, what we're seeing, Craig, is the result, uh, well, what R.C. Sproul, the late biblical scholar R.C. Sproul said, ideas have consequences. And good teaching yields uh, good conclusions and good behaviors and bad teaching and falsehood and spin and revisionism yields uh, bad beliefs and bad outcomes. Um, but let, let's go back to 9-11, if we could. Um, shortly after 9-11, a man much in the news, he died in 2008. He was a Harvard professor for 50 years and a member of the Carter administration, Samuel Huntington. And he had written a book in 93, about eight years before 9-11, a book called The Clash of Civilizations and the, the Making of a New World Order. And basically, Samuel Huntington said, uh, I'm just going to say it, that Islam and the West, Islam and America are not compatible. Muslims don't assimilate. Now, Craig, I, I realize a lot of people, especially American liberals, and I, I would, and, and I'm not saying this in a pejorative way, I'm just saying by way of observation, naive American liberals that really want to believe everybody is good and everybody 
is entitled to their own opinion, and, and they are, but, you know, the, the assumption that all ideas are equally valid and that all people are of good faith and act in good faith, fairness and justice to all, those are very naive ideas. And what, what's been so great about America is the Judeo-Christian DNA of America was sufficient to hold at bay two juggernauts that have arm-wrestled for the future of America. There are two, two forces uh, wrestling for the future of the world, the iron fist of communism and the iron sword of Sharia. And even my friend Christopher Hitchens, the atheist, Craig, did you ever interview Christopher Hitchens? You know, I had a chance to years ago, and unfortunately, the the timing kind of fell apart, and then he passed away. Yeah, sadly, I think he was uh, 2012. I was actually I was actually in Northern California when Hitchens passed away. Now, let me say this: um, he was an atheist. Part of the reason I bring up his name, Craig, is because I'm sorry he was an atheist. I really don't think he ever changed from that. We emailed up until days before he died. Uh, I debated him. I had him on the radio. Hitchens was a, a stellar intellect, even though we disagreed on, you know, Christianity and Jesus Christ. But here's what even Christopher Hitchens said to me. We were on live radio uh, several months before he died that... Um, the best way to change the Islamic world would be to convert the Muslims to Christianity. Wow. And even Hitchens, who was not... And, and he said that to me on a radio program we were on together. He said, he said, I don't say this out of Christian conviction because I'm not a Christian. He said, but believing Christianity changes people's mind and heart and behavior. And, you know, obviously peace treaties don't get Muslims to treat uh, the uh, participants in the treaty peacefully. You cannot trust Hamas to keep any sort of uh, detente or, or deal. Um, so, like Samuel Huntington said uh, shortly after 9-11, Islam does not assimilate with the West. And, and I realized that, you know, uh, again, American liberals that, that so want to believe that all ideas are equally true and so want to believe that people are good, not evil, and so want to marginalize Christianity as intolerant and biased and things like that, um, the hope of the world uh, in terms of holding both terrorism and communism at bay, like it or not, the best hope for equally distributed stability, prosperity, order, opportunity, is that worldview that secularists find so odious, but those of us who know it find it so beneficial, and that worldview is Christianity. Craig, we are suffering from the suppression of and rejection of Christian truth. And Islam, they hate Israel. 
They don't even know why. Um, but American liberals, if they were really consistently logical thinkers, should be supporting Israel, not supporting Palestine. In particular, when you see the degree of wanton violence, unapologetically so, and, you know, if this was violence for the sake of winning a war, capturing, uh, you know, stolen territory, lost territory, some some kind of a goal, you know, violence to help win World War II and reestablish peace in Europe and tranquility in the Pacific. Okay, I, I get that. But here you have examples of people that are willing to fight unto their own death without thought or hesitation whatsoever. And I know that the, practically every soldier will, will, you know, vow to fight to the death in order to protect his or her country. I, I, I applaud that. I get that. But at the same token, nobody says, hey, and let me volunteer to do that today. And, and, and it's always been amazing to me the, the fundamental disconnect of the value of life that not only do you not care enough about your own, clearly you've done, you know, demonstrated you don't care about anybody else's, but even the sense of self-preservation is not there. And, I, and I've always wondered just how much of that is really sort of baked into the ideology called Islam, where people are even stripped of the fundamental sense of fight-flight self-preservation. Well, yeah, again, bad, bad ideas have bad consequences. I mean, look, in Islam, talk about uh, a devil's deal. If you kill and die in the cause of jihad, you're promised heaven. Uh, I mean, this is so sad, and this is... Uh, uh, the, the strongest possible word I can muster is the word wicked. To tell people, even children, um, go kill the infidel, and in the process, get yourself killed, and you'll go straight to heaven. Uh, you know, here's some of the differences. Um, Yasser Arafat and, and uh, Osama bin Laden, you know, o over the years before they died, uh, they, they each said, any of my followers would die for me. But Jesus said that he would lay down his life for his followers. Yeah. He said, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Talk about uh, turning the tables. Exactly. You know, um, in, in the aftermath of 9-11, I did a fair amount of media interviews, Craig, and people were saying, well, you know, Bill, Bill Maher famously said that 9-11 uh, was a faith-based initiative. Here's the difference. Um, the cru Crusades and, you know, anomalies like David Koresh and, you know, Waco and Yes, there have been evil things done in the name of, of Christ. But here's the thing. The Salem Witch Trials and the Crusades happened when Christians deviated from their scriptures. 9-11 and October 7 happened when Muslims followed their scriptures. Mm. And... Uh, big difference. Absolutely. And let's pause on that point because I don't I don't want to interrupt your thought. If you've just tuned in our conversation today with best-selling author, Christian apologist, and religion culture expert Dr. Alex McFarland, we're talking about the the hotbed that we've seen erupt yet once again in the Middle East and of course uh, sort of perennially looking for the answer to the question will it ever stop? I suspect this side of Christ's return, and probably not, because 
sin abounds. We'll get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When you were a kid, you probably heard mom or dad occasionally when you get into a fight with a sibling, go to your separate corners, go to your rooms. There was a sense of dividing up the territory, separating the two of you. Things would calm down and eventually be back to being best friends again. Unfortunately, trying to do that between countries or between peoples in a place like the Middle East is just not practical. And as much as you might want to attempt to do that, and certainly I think there were aspects of the uh, the 1948 creation of Israel that attempted to create that sort of environment, neutral territory, clearly there is a motivating factor behind the approach by Islam that is fundamental to Islam that just simply won't let things go. And I guess this raises a question that's almost unfair to ask you, Dr. McFarland, but <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. And that is that we look at this landscape, we see moments of at least, if not peace, at least a little bit of detente where nobody's getting along per se, but neither are they shooting at each other. And then we get into these big, horrible moments where there's tens of, you know, hundreds of not thousands of people losing their lives all needlessly fighting over real estate. But in the end, is it really over real estate or is it more about ideals and concepts? Mm. Well, uh, great question. And again, Craig, it's an honor to be with you. Uh, a, l- a little bit of history. You know, Muhammad was born in 571 A.D., and Islam started roughly around 610 A.D. Um, I, I'll throw out the question that I ask a lot of college students. In, in the town where I live in North Carolina, right in the middle of the state, about three or four weeks ago, we had a stand for Israel. Uh, on a Sunday afternoon, one of the major thoroughfares, uh, it was a very peaceful group, uh, about 400 people. Uh, many Jewish people, uh, a lot of Christian people. But we, we stood on this major thoroughfare and we had signs, very peaceful, innocuous signs like Psalm 122, verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And um, 99.9% of all the cars going by gave a thumbs up and, you know, uh, even two different police cars, you know, tooted their horn and gave a big thumbs up. But there were a group of college students who came and there, there were several groups of clearly, you know, young people, college students, and uh, one of the colleges that I attended in my undergrad, uh, University of North Carolina at Greensboro, UNCG, students went by giving us the middle finger and screaming about uh, support for Palestine. So a group of college students came up, and we had a very peaceful conversation, and I asked them, I said, um, you know, do you care about social justice? Oh, yes, yes. Do you care about the rights of indigenous people? Yes, yes, yes. In fact, Craig, I spoke at the University of Canada, Toronto, uh, right before COVID. And in Canada, uh, Indigenous Peoples Day has really eclipsed Canada Day. So among the social justice mindset are the rights of indigenous people, Native Americans, over you know, America. So anyway, I said, so why in the case of Israel versus Hamas, why do the rights of the indigenous people not matter there? And of course, they had a blank look. They didn't have an answer. And I said, well, look, you know, uh, 
3,500 years before the emergence of Islam. Uh, if, if ever history's most indigenous people had ample empirical proof of their claim for that land, my goodness, the indigenous people of Jerusalem, the land of Israel, the Middle East, that's the Jewish people. And so I, I said to the students that clearly were simply parroting and repeating what their uber-liberal professors had drilled into them, hatred for the Jews, uh, unwillingness to recognize Israel's right to exist, and the rights of the Palestinians. I said, my goodness, um, where is the cry for the support of indigenous people when it comes to Israel? By historical precedent, three, I mean, three millennia before the existence of Islam and Palestinians, the Jews were in that land. They are the indigenous people. But you and I would believe it for, you know, divine sanctioning. But uh, here's my point, Craig. If I could quote two uh, religion college textbooks from 110 years ago. Um, I, I like old books because I, I enjoy reading books before the age of uh, spin, revisionism, and wokeness. But uh, Islam was started, this is what Samuel Braden, he wrote a book in the 1920s called The World's Great Religions. And then another wor uh, book, not only Samuel Braden, but um, one other book that I've got from the 1920s on world religions. Both of these are very academic textbooks. Um, th they say that Islam was started to be in conscious opposition to Christianity and Judaism. And for various reasons, um, Muhammad descended from Ishmael, the Edomites and the Ishmaelites, um, Genesis 16 says that they would dwell in opposition to their brethren. And, I mean, my goodness, history has so borne that out that the children of Ishmael have been, you know, the opponents in varying degrees, tragically so. You know, like you said, the concert goers, children, women, elderly people just executed by Hamas in recent weeks, but the children of Ishmael have been the warring opponents of the children of Isaac and Abraham. Uh, I mean, so it, it's the world's longest ongoing conflict, but whether you stand with Israel because of biblical conviction or just historical precedent and human rights, I mean, there's no rational, no justifiable reason whatsoever to stand with the Palestinians on this. I mean, Israel has done the humane thing, the just thing time and again, and time and again the the terrorists have not. Uh, but, you know, American liberalism is is about truth and logic only when it serves their ideology. Well, your point is well taken because so often there's a scenario built up where uh, if it supports the narrative... <laughs> 
pardon me, if it supports the agenda, they're all for it. And I think you you, you raised an interesting question, and, and frankly, I've not yet heard it quite articulated that way, but I think it could spur some, hopefully, some healthy dialogue, and maybe for, for people that are just uh, virulently anti-Israel, uh, might even cause them to, to pause and think a little bit, if they're intellectually honest. And that is to say, do you support the right of Native peoples or Indigenous peoples? And then cite California as an example. And you'll likely get, you know, a rip-roaring, oh, yes, absolutely, we stole and land from Native Americans, and it's terrible what we've done, and so on and so forth. And then ask the same question in relationship to that spot of land over in the Middle East. See what kind of answer you get. Fascinating look at an extremely complicated topic. As only Dr. Alex McFarland can help offer some insights. More information, by the way, on the web at alexmcfarland.com. That's alexmcfarland.com. And as you think about your holiday gift giving, keep in mind this might be a great book for not only a young believer, but even a seasoned believer seeking to understand more when it comes to proper Christian Apologetics. 100 Bible Questions and Answers for Families. This is one of the most recent releases by Dr. Alex McFarland. Information available again on the web at alexmcfarland.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, seemingly we're into an election cycle almost from the day the inauguration takes place. At least that's my sense. You know, a member of the House constantly running for office. They get elected. They get sworn into office. They get to work. And now suddenly they're working to raise money because in two years' time they're up for re-election again. And that seems to, at least the mentality of same, seems to have sort of crept into even our presidential elections. And so if you're already weary of this and we're barely a year away from the election, well, my apologies. But I think it's important that we understand a bit more about why all this is, and more importantly, more specifically, as to how the process works. As I suggested in my opening remarks tonight, were we to take a survey of the average listener and said, well, tell us how, how do presidents get elected? They would say, well, you know, in America, we're a democracy. We have a primary. Folks go to the polls. They select a candidate. Whoever wins in your party becomes that party's uh, candidate. And then the other party does the same thing. And then we all get together um, in uh, five or six months' time, and we vote between the two primary party winners, and uh, that's how we pick our presidents. And were you to say that, I would say nice try, but not really accurate. So we're going to call on our resident constitutional historian. He's also a best-selling author, attorney, and had hosted one of the longest-running libertarian talk shows in the country, Mr. Bob Zadak. And Robert, a belated happy Thanksgiving to you. Welcome. Good to have you with us. Glad to be back. Thanks for inviting me, Craig. Let's talk about this, because as I suggest, the, the process of how we think we elect our presidents and how the machinery really works are two entirely different things. For example, we're beginning to hear a lot of talk about primaries and New Hampshire and caucusing. And some folks say, I don't even know how to spell that word, let alone understand what it means. I live in California. So spend some time, if you would, Bob, and kind of peel back the air, layers of this onion and help us better understand how the primaries function and ultimately how you know, even the general election functions well and it's good to put this in thank you craig and it's good to put this in perspective um it is easy for people who are let's say 40 or 50 years old to um, 
focus on primary elections and to naturally assume that that's always been that way. And that's just the way it is because that's all they have experienced in their lifetimes. Well, that's not the way it used to be. It depends how far back you want to go. But I think we have stumbled upon the very worst system of electing a president that one could possibly imagine. And I say that for this reason. First of all, I'll start with uh, to introduce myself in this context to your audience, our audience, if I may, uh, I will point out that I am firmly of the mind that almost everything which is wrong with politics in America today is the result of, are you ready, folks, too much democracy. We Mm. have too much democracy, and no matter what problem you have with our system of government, it can be traced, not with a dotted line, but with a heavy, thick black line to too much democracy. And the primary system is the best, not the only, but the best example of that. Here's what I mean. The goal of uh, a president will govern well to the extent that the president represents and speaks for most of Americans. That is somebody in the middle. Because that president will start off with goodwill and the support of most of the country. So the goal is we want a president, not who's a radical, but who represents what most of this country thinks our country should be like. Okay, now, the way one gets to be president is you win an election. Therefore, since we have, for better or for worse, and I would say for worse, a two-party system, each party would love to have all of the spoils that come, political spoils, that comes from winning elections. Therefore, a political party, the organization itself, the purpose is to win. Not much different than an NFL team. Their purpose is to win. Now, imagine how an NFL team would be if the players on that team were elected by all the city, all the citizens of San Francisco. They got to vote on who's gonna be the starting players for the team. Chances are that team wouldn't be particularly good. Somebody would win, but you wouldn't have the 51 best players because popularity is achieved by things other than skill at a position. It's a factor, but there are lots of other factors, like ability, handsome they are, telegenic, all that stuff. And that's a perfect example of too much democracy. We could have the San Francisco 49ers, the players elected, elected by citizens. There could be a vote. Who's gonna be your starting team? Okay, but it, but it would be a crappy team, wouldn't it? Of course it would. 
Therefore, we want professionals to pick the team. We want Lynch, and we want um, uh, coaches to pick the players. Why? Because they know who the winners are. They have the skills of picking the winners. Therefore, therefore, if we go back to pre-primary America, generally before 1968 and the debacle in the Chicago Democratic primary, if we go back before that, the presidential candidate for each party was picked by the insiders. Smoke-filled room. You read about that if you're young, you experienced it if you're old. The smoke-filled room. No one knew until the night of the convention who was going to be the presidential nominee. And it was picked by who? By professionals who were concerned about one thing, winning the general election, just like the general manager of the 49ers. He got to be general manager because he knows how to pick winners, presumably. Well, party insiders know how to pick candidates who will win. Compare that, compare that to the system of primaries. When, when voters vote in primaries, be it Democratic or Republican primaries, they, to them, that is the election. They are content if their candidate wins the primary and then it's game over. They have won. They don't have their eye on the general election because they don't know how to pick a president who's going to be or a candidate who's going to be elected. So we have a stupid system to pick the winner. It's not a popularity contest. It's a contest to make a complex decision who will win the general election. And if you use my metaphor of having a popular election to determine the starting teams for the NFL versus the insiders, that's the best way to explain this to a general audience, why primaries make no sense whatsoever. And the result is, we have now, likely, Trump and Biden will be the, well, there'll be no Democratic primary to speak of, but Trump will win the Republican primary. Not because he is likely to win the general. Of all the presidential candidates, who are Republican candidates, who are vaguely in the running, any one of them is more likely to win the general than Trump. What better proof of there of my thesis then the primary system will produce the candidate least likely to win the general. So that's why I say too much democracy is just as bad as too little. And we can go on to explore that when we examine the Electoral College in a moment. But, Craig, that's my opening premise for today's show. And this raises a very important question I want to have you touch on when we come back after the break. And that is the notion that, and you know, we've, we've long given credit to the Founding Fathers as being uh, unique in the understanding of a human behavior, uh, the crafting of the Constitution and the kind of rights that they wish to enshrine in it. 
and the acknowledgement they, they give, quite frankly, to some of mankind's strong points and, at the same token, our weaknesses, I think suggests that they understood more about human behavior than maybe even the modern-day psychologist. And I'll elaborate on that point, and we'll get your feedback to that in just a moment, because this notion of today seemingly having too much democracy and this not really being in a purest sense of the term what the founding fathers had in mind for our elections well we're going to get to that part of the conversation as well as a look at the electoral college as our conversation with best-selling author bob zadek continues information on the web by the way at bob zadek.com b-o-b-z-a-d-e-k.com lots of great resources there as i mentioned you'll catch uh, youtube broadcasts I, i'm sorry podcasts there in fact he has a fascinating conversation with um the the doctor of the Senate, and maybe Bob will even tell us quickly about that that visit and uh, sort of the layers of the onion being peeled back on Dr. Anthony Fauci. But we'll get to that later on. Right now, though, let's get to this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. This is one of the afternoons when we should have had two hours booked with Bob Zedek as opposed to a half hour. So we'll have a good excuse to have him back again. We're talking today with best-selling author, constitutional historian, and attorney Bob Zedek about uh, the role that primaries play in the elections, the role that we play in selecting presidents. And, and it occurs to me, Bob, that the Founding Fathers perhaps exercise greater wisdom than we even give them credit for. And you alluded to this earlier on, the notion that there's so many details that we're unaware of. And certainly at the time of the founding of this nation, you had people that were educated individuals, you had people that were business owners and farmers and things of that sort, and then you sort of had the everyday run-of-the-mill folks who oftentimes were undereducated, if educated at all, and whose capacity to really look at information, judge it, select a candidate, would have been severely hampered. And so the notion of having a mechanism in place that would relieve the general populace of that burden seemed to be a a very smart idea. Uh, Sadly, we've kind of uh, down through the years muddied the waters, so to speak, that I think has created a bit of the mess that we have today, that it's primaries, some are open, some are closed, caucusing, and then, of course, we all decide who the candidate's going to be for our party, then only to find out, well, wait, it's actually the convention that makes that final decision. You know, Craig, you focused on something when you mentioned the Electoral College that is a perfect way to explain two, two principles. Number one, again, the, the general observation of too much bureaucracy. And number two, my intensely held belief that when it comes to the architecture of our government, the founders got it, always got it right, and to the extent that later generations, through constitutional amendments, jiggled with the architecture of government that the founders gave us, they made a mistake. And the Electoral College is the best example on the planet, in my opinion. They got the concept of the Electoral College correct, although it was never carried out very well and therefore atrophied. 
And here's a way to ask our audience to really expand their intellectual horizons in terms of electing a president. I will take the system the founders gave us, I will give it an injection of a steroid, and I will, in the process, make life as a, as a voting American so much more pleasant. I would propose, simply as a thought experiment, having an electoral college which is active, and an electoral college actually elects a president. Nobody votes for president anymore. That sounds anti-democratic, but wait, let me explain. Imagine a system of an electoral college of, let's say, 25,000 electors. Now, if we had 25,000 electors, I picked that at random, that's not a calculation, that would mean that there'd be so many small electoral districts, 25,000 of them, that the elector would be generally known to most people who vote for electors. Because there's too many of them. You would always know the elector. I have some experience with them. Now, the electoral college would be elected in the two or in the off years of presidential election. So every four years, but two years before presidential election, we vote for electors. Long before any candidates have surfaced. And we vote amongst our community for electors. And how are we going to pick an elector? People we know are smart or have good judgment because we know them. They're our neighbors, they're our lawyer, our accountant, our storekeeper, anybody. So we elect electors based upon who we want to represent us in the presidential vote. The electors then meet, 25,000 of them, they don't meet in person, they meet and they form committees and they start interviewing people who want to be president. And they have subcommittees on various topics, foreign affairs, domestic affairs, etc. And the electors winnow it down, they have interviews, they do so, some hearings the public, some are not the public. So the public generally watches what's going on. On election day, the electors meet, and they, 25,000 of them, elect a president and you know what that means four years every four years no advertisements no debates no solicitations for our money there is no such thing as a presidential election it's going on in the background and we go about our lives what a relief oh my goodness we don't have to have this assault on our senses and all of this competition for president now if this seems un-american we do it right now in the senate and in the house we could have americans voting whether to declare war we could do it or americans declaring whether to raise the prime rate we could do that too but we don't we elect people to make those decisions for us. They're called senators or representatives. We outsource that obnoxious task to other people. There's still democracy because we vote for the electors. So there's still plenty of democracy, but we don't have to be inundated with the obscenity 
of presidential election politics. We can go about our lives. And you know what? We're richer because we're not kicking in a whole lot of money in election campaigns. And we're not feeding the media and making contributions. We go about our lives. A life without a presidential election cycle is heaven to me. There's an example of less democracy, but enough democracy, so we participate, albeit indirectly, and we go about our lives. Now, I ask anybody who just heard me, doesn't that sound like it's heaven? Well, moreover, and uh, we're running out of time here, uh, Bob, and I apologize, but moreover, it also would eliminate some of the other silly little, um, shall we say, habits that we've gotten into, ceremonies that we've embraced, like, for example, engaging in debates. I mean, (laughs) we've had a current debate cycle where not even every candidate is fully participating, and largely this seems to be about who's got the best quick short turnaround liners who has the best makeup artist who was able to stay on the stage the longest and say the most outrageous comment to wind up on the news the next morning. I, I have failed to see the value in the so-called debates, both between primaries and the general election for years now. And you're, thank you for focusing on that, because if you think about it, Craig, the skill that the skills you need to win, that's in air quotes, to win a debate are useless if you're the president. Do we want somebody, a president, to think on his feet? What does that mean? He, he doesn't consult with other people? Do we want a president to be a telegenic, a wise guy, one who doesn't perspire, one who's tall and not fat? Is that how we pick a president? Because that's how he decides who wins debates. We don't want presidents who are glib. We want them who who are competent. And competence never wins debates. It's always glibness and sarcasm and things of that nature. So debates are insane. It's like, imagine having a debate as to who's going to be a starting quarterback. You decide it by a debate. It's nonsense. Yeah, it's a complete disconnect from reality. And... uh Sadly, maybe it's time, particularly as these elections become more contentious and more drawn out and more frustrating, more burdensome for um, Americans. Maybe it's time we revisit all this. Bob Zadek with some great insights. You can catch more of this on his website, bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-E-D-A-K.com. And as always, Bob, we appreciate the time and the insights. I made reference to his upcoming special. I think it's already available as a podcast, um, a conversation kind of pulling back the curtain on COVID and Fauci. And you'll want to check out that visit. Go online to his website, bobzadek.com for more information. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.